Good morning. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jelaine. And today we're talking about what are we talking about? Blade Runner the RPG. Blade Runner the RPG. Now I know Jolene is not a fan of the movie. Not so much that I'm not a fan, just that it you, puts me to sleep with You didn't like watch it. it. You didn't like it. I didn't like it. It was too slow. Yeah. Anyway, I am a fan of the movie. Came out in nineteen eighty two. I probably didn't watch it till a couple years later. And years and years later in 2022 they made Blade Runner the RPG Free League got the rights to make it and they used their a version of their Year Zero engine there's not a dice pool though right usually they're known for their D6 dice pools that you get when you simply add your attribute to your skill you add those two numbers and that's how many six side dice you roll if you get a six on any die you succeed that's not the case in, in Blade Runner, though. Right, right. And instead, they used the one that they modified in Twilight 2000. Instead of all these D6s, they have die types for each attribute or skill. You get a die type between the D6 to a D12. So that includes a D8, D10, and D12. D12, and a D6. Which is important because you got to get over 10 to succeed. You need a six to succeed. Oh, a six. On any die roll. But if you get over 10, you get something special. You get two successes. So that that's the dice mechanic. Uh, if you ever played any freely game, it's going to look familiar to you. Uh, it is really easy to comprehend and easy to pick up. Usually people who have never played a game can know how to play within literally just a couple minutes. The description of of how the dice mechanic works. You can also push just like in other games or for a free league games, right? Right, free league allows you to push, and each game has its own special mechanic. In Alien, it's uh, it's what is it? Panic. Well, no, that's the stress mechanic, right? But every every time you push, every every game, different game has a different uh, side effect of. Of pushing that's so, the side effect of pushing an alien right if you right if you miss on on the push dice because you have different color dice to push an alien then you go to your stress mechanic if you get the yeah you are correct right but every yeah every every different game has a different uh, consequence for pushing some of them uh, if you succeed nothing happens other times, if even just trying to push causes you to have some sort of consequence. And in Aliens, it's you increase your stress for pushing. In this one, if you if you push and you come up and it comes up as a one, then um, you either take bodily damage or um, or stress that weakens your resolve, depending on whether you're attempting a physical or mental a- right. action. So you have two types of like hit points in uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner, and one of them is uh, mental stress, and the other one is physical stress. And what happens is you build up the stress, and it makes you worse at doing everything. For every point of stress you have, you lose a die type on whatever you're rolling. So you could lose like two or three die types. So let's say you have a D10 in your uh, strength then you would lose, like, it would be a D10, D8, D6 instead of a D10 when you're rolling. 
So it makes it much harder to succeed is basically what happens. And uh, and there's two die types, right? Because there's one for your skill and there's one for your attribute. And usually your skill uh, is... As a, you all skills are tied tied to a attribute, but just like other freely games, if you as a player argue that I shouldn't use my strength, I should use my resolve in this case to try to get over this fence to do something physical, you could argue for it, and it's up to the GM to allow it or not allow it. And I think that's pretty neat. I think that's what I like about freely games is that it allows players to try to to think outside the box and see if they can, I'm not going to say finagle, but, you know, uh, know that there's other ways to resolve a problem other than what is normally the way to resolve a problem. So I think it makes char- characters and it makes players a little bit more, uh, what is it? To... It gives them more choices or chances to use different that's true choices and chances but also that makes them more i don't know not savvy but just you know i i think it's that i don't know i can't think of the word but anyway so that's the that's the dice mechanic it's pretty easy we just explained it to you and uh i i will say that when we did the i'm not gonna say play test we play tested saul's game sort of not really no i ran you through electric dreams i did do that yeah we Help did it on run the game. We did it on roll twenty. Right. So the dice mechanic to me was a little harder to understand since it was on roll twenty. I didn't have my dice in front of me. Right, because it does it automatically. Because I had to keep asking, which which dice am I rolling? I couldn't tell. And then I finally, after about three hours, I figured it out. But <laughs> well, because it it doesn't it doesn't really tell you on your. When you're rolling the dice, right? You click on it and it rolls yeah, it for just you. Yeah, it for you. And then I'm like going, well, how am I getting that number? What am I rolling? And then right, Felipe pointed it out to me on the sheet, which helped me. So. Yeah, and then you're, you're relying on an electronic sheet or yeah. on the screen sheet. So. And I hadn't seen anything. I hadn't touched the book or anything like that, so I didn't I didn't know. You hadn't read the book. Right. I thought it was interesting. The other stress mechanic thing was that you had to rest. You had to pick a time to rest and there were hour in intervals, hour these intervals of right. cuz cuz you're a, a police detective or a detective something. Yeah, you're a police detective. And yeah. you and the longer you go you have to rest or you're going to lose points. Oh, like you get stress. Yeah. Mental, mental stress or physical stress. And that's what you decide to do. So there is this idea that you have to you have to rest, have a downtime, they call it. And in the game, everything is happens in four-hour shifts. So kind of like a, like working, you know, you have uh, I you have it a was, I certain thought it amount was... of time. No. Six uh, no. six hours. No, every shift is four hours, and after three hours, or in a four after four after three hours, you have to rest, or you start to suffer consequences. Three shifts, you mean? Sorry, three shifts, which are which would be like what twelve hours, three times twelve. Yeah. So I was lenient on it because he let us sleep in the car while we were waiting for one of us could sleep while the other two were doing something. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting mechanic. It allows, it slows down the game, right? Because like everything, every it says in the rules, anytime they go somewhere, it's a shift. And and I, and I was like, well, it's not going to take four hours for them to go to this place. And the role play aspect of them talking to, let's say, the secretary of this company and them trying to get information. It's not going to take four hours. But it says every time they go to a location, it takes four hours. And I think that's the game mechanic to if you are more than one player or two players, if you have a larger group, let's say four players, and that's about as large a group as you're going to want in this game, you have to split the party sometimes to get the job done and that means like to get the job done faster and to to do the case better right because to work the case better because sometimes there's going to be a moment when you want to go to this part of LA and at the same time there's another lead in the opposite direction and so you split the party to be able to handle those at the both at the same time that way it was not going to take you as long time to get the case done, the job done. And I think this kind of helps people get the idea that it's okay to split the party, even though most games, well, we'll say D&D, there's that adage of don't split the party, right? Everybody know, pretty much knows that one. But in this game, it kind of tells you, go ahead and split the party. It's okay because... This is not a tactical combat game. This is an investigative game. And the more information you find out, the faster, the better it is for your investigative team. And just like in the movie, the clues are very obscure. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't say obscure, but I understand what Jolene is saying because I ran them through Electric Sheep, which is a adventure in the starter box. And I kind of want to wait to talk about that later, but it's an adventure in the starter box. And I was running it to see how the game played before I ran a game at a local convention. This was back in February. So we played, it must have been right at the end of January. It was. And I think we played, what, once or twice? It took us two times. Yeah, two two sessions. The first time I was really tired, so... Yeah. I wasn't we very helpful. We had to end early because she was passed out on the bed. And I used it to see how the game flowed just to get it under my belt. I don't want to go to a convention and say, this is, I've never ran this game. And Yeah, it's not a good idea. Yeah, right. For me, that's not the kind of experience I want people to have is everybody learning how the game system works. I will tell them, hey, I've just got this game. I've only ran it a few times or once. And... There's going to be some times where I might have to like pause and look at my notes and stuff like that. But luckily, when I ran it at the convention, I ran my own game of an adventure of my own design or my own ideas. And it went rather well. And I thought thought it was and I had a, a lot of fun. So I decided that when I before that, I wanted to run like a dry run of the rules. And I ran with Jolene, my brother, Felipe and my friend, Mike. I think those three of you, right? Yeah. And uh, Jolene didn't didn't like the movie. She, she still. I didn't watch the movie until after the first adventure that you were uh, after the first session. gaming session. Oh, okay. Then I Mike Mike said, "Oh, it's a great movie. You should watch it." And so I watched it, 
and I fell asleep towards the end of it. It was it was a very slow movie. I like the setting, but it was very slow. And that's another thing I think you should talk about is the setting cuz there's not it's not like a they don't tell you in the movie anything about the setting. Do they say anything about the... At the, the very beginning, the they, do, they do the little thing about a couple paragraphs about what's happening. But for the most part, you learn everything in the movie of how everything works. It tells you that there was these things called replicants, right? Clones. That's what they call them. I don't even know if they're clones, but they're replicants. These are man-made people. Uh, they are used for jobs that nobody wants to do or highly dangerous uh, they have a limited lifespan in order to be safe because uh, if they were lived longer, they, they would develop their own feelings and their own, uh, what is it? Personalities. Uh, personalities and goals. And sometimes that doesn't match up with the idea of them being basically in servitude, right? They don't. Do they know they're replicants? I think, yeah. Yes, they do. Okay. I never... I, I didn't totally catch that. Well, I did catch it in the movie because who was the guy? Who was the Ridley Scott? Ruth, Rutger Howard. Rutger Howard. He was a very mean replicant. Well, he didn't want to die. Well, yeah. So if you haven't seen the movie, I would suggest go watching the first movie. Okay, it came out in 1982. If I'm spoiling it for you, I'm sorry. No, no, but I'm saying you should watch the movie and and definitely get the idea, the feel for this game if you've never seen it. There, I'm sure there's some people who have never seen it. I mean, it came out in 1982. It's, uh, it's quite a long time ago. And if you were in your 20s or 30s, you may not have seen it. And I, I just because I thought it was boring doesn't mean you would. <laughs> I'm just saying I... Oh my god! And so I have a friend, David, who absolutely loves this movie, and I apologize to Dave for Jolene's uh, absurd comments in this part of the podcast. But obviously, people love this movie, and when they talk about a classic sci-fi thriller movie, Blade Runner is usually the top of the list. It hits all of those. the The thriller part, if you watch thriller movies, you know they can be slow. Right. The noir part, right? This this idea of the dystopian future where corporations have taken over. In 1982, well, it's based on a book by Philip K. Dick called Do Electric, Do, I Enjoy Dream of Electric Sheep. Now, if you read that book, which I didn't read that book until my son was in high school and we read it together, he literally liked the book. And then we saw the movie and he goes, this has nothing to do with the book. And it's very strange that that Blade Runner is based on that book because it has this idea, it has this the central character who is a cop and does things that he does, kind of like in the movie, but really it's more of a, well, I guess you could think Blade Runner is the same thing, but it is, it's about social commentary of things that happen in, in that time. It has to do with religion. It has to do with groupthink and all these other things. And it's a really short novel. So I suggest reading that book just to for Philip K. Dick's ability to like look into the future. But anyway, so I had that question because I was at a convention not too long ago. And I was explaining to a, a person that I was running Blade Runner. And she asked, oh, 
Is it based on Philip K. Dick's do Andrew's Dream Electric Sheep? Because she goes, I really like the book. I didn't really like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, my God, another one just like my wife. And I go, no, it's based really on the movie. It has almost nothing to do with the book. I go, the movie has almost nothing to do with the book anyway. She goes, yeah, I, I, I was... I was really surprised when I saw the movie. But anyway, I personally really love the movie. I love the music. I love the mood. Uh, I think it has quite a bit of action. I think it has a lot to do with uh, how it's kind of like a police procedural in a certain sense or how police work is done or how it might be done in the future. And I thought it was really well done. And so when you think about Blade Runner, the RPG, it really tries to emulate the mood and the feeling of the movie and not the book so well and i'm all i said was the movie was boring and (laughs) to me that but that's because the action was sporadic right it wasn't there very often a lot of it was just harrison ford thinking inside of his head well it's it's not an action movie i know it's a it's a thriller it is a thriller movie it's a it is an investigative and if you know movie. me at all you know i'm a i'm a kind of john wick kind of girl versus a yeah i think i think the action type of movie has spoiled a lot of people especially me <laughs> anyway so you have the set of rules uh, we explained the dice mechanic so the book is very i think it's for very well laid out it gives you a little bit about just like the movie it gives you a little about what's going on in the world it talks about events that that shaped the 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 world so this setting of this book of this rpg is based in 2039 the first movie blade runner is set in 2020 and there's another movie called Twenty Four Blade Runner Twenty Forty Nine that's set in Twenty Forty Nine. So it's set in between the two movies, right? So it's it's set pretty close in the middle of these two movies. With that, it it has a timeline. It tells you th- big events that happen up until Twenty Thirty Nine, and then it talks about it has a, a good uh, explanation of of the dice mechanic of the rules, and then it goes into character creation. And character creation is pretty simple. It has, uh, there's these uh, archetypes. And really, you don't need to follow the archetypes. You could create your own character the way the rules are written. It's kind of like, well, it's kind of like an archetype, right? It's not like a character class that you're going to get these skills if you are this character type. It says, if, mo- if you are going to play this kind of character, these are the skills that are most important for that character. And these are the at these are the attributes that are important to that character. And what it does is it basically helps you as a player figure out what kind of character you want to play. So much like Savage Worlds, you can make any kind of character you want, but they have archetypes that help you zone in on the type of character that you want to play. And almost any game that uses archetypes, I would say Shadowrun is exactly the same thing. And uh Feng even, Shui. Feng Shui and GURPS there are archetypes but the rules tell you how to make a character basically from scratch and basically there are there are four four attributes there are 12 skills plus driving everybody gets driving skill uh, and and that's it and usually there's uh, out of the four attributes there are three uh, skills attached to it 
and they usually pair. You usually use your your athletics with strength and stuff like that, and you add those, and that's that's the die combinations that you use. So when you're making a character, you look at the archetype and and you follow this kind of a character type that you want to play. And they have pre-gen characters that you can look at to see how the skills go together. Right? That's in the starter box. So so if if you're making the character for the first time and you get Sometimes making character rules are kind of hard. Free League's pretty good, but yeah, yeah. But um, I'm just saying that they have examples that you can look at to see if if that's the way you want to do it, right? Right. Now, I've said in the past that Free League games, Year Zero Engine is the only game system that I would want to make characters at the table, like at a con. And this is not really that type of game. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Because it's a little bit more... It'll take, it'll take about an hour, right? Yeah, I would say it'll take about an hour. Because you decide the age of your character, and the age of your character decides uh, the older you are, the less physical traits you have, because time takes its toll, but you have more skills. And if, if you're younger, you have higher attributes, but you have less points to spend on skills. And if you're a replicant? If you're really well, then you have a certain amount of skills. Every replicant is only a year old, so you have high attributes, and you get a bonus attribute because they're stronger and smarter than 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 most humans, average. But they don't have a a, a lot of skills. I think the biggest part of this game it's an investigative game. You're cops, right? But someone in in the game we played anyway, there's at least one replicant, right? In your team. Oh yeah, yeah. You can play replicants as a thing. Yeah. I was a replicant and. I found that to be most interesting playing this game. The idea that these people are, and it is total social commentary, right? These people, you're supposed to be one of the team, but someone on your team inevitably doesn't like replicants, right? And it's not because you're a replicant, it's just because whatever. They're not going to tell you what it is, but basically it's, it's a total social commentary on on our society, right? So the whole time I'm I'm sitting there going, "Hey, this guy's being a total jerk to me because he doesn't like me." Oh yeah, yeah. You're talking about society in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the the players that not the the NPCs treat you differently and stuff like that. You're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. I think it does talk about that kind of bigotry, and uh, it does come out. Well, and they don't like replicants because. Replicants, they say they take their jobs, blah, 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 and then they're unstable, which is totally true because these replicants are could go crazy at any time. Not necessarily all of them, but there's the possibility. So in this game, every replicant is a Nexus 9, right? The latest model of replicant. Because the Nexus 8 tried to kill people? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think so, but they... <laughs> Ever since the Nexus Six, which is the one based that was in the original Blade Runner movie that went wacko and and killed people, they were banned from Earth, right? So, and that's what the movie is about: yes. is the Blade Runner just going after replicants because they're I've been outlawed on on Earth, and in in this case in this game setting that's, that's in this at this setting at twenty. 39 that's no longer the case in fact nexus nines are now used in the united states they're now used on the world and they're needed because 
of events that happened before that. There's this huge famine. There's this huge, well, famine by itself will knock out quite a bit of the population. So there's a big events that happen in, in the setting that causes the loss of uh, of life and there's jobs that are being are not filled and then with the Nexus 9 they come in and they start doing jobs that need to be done but there's nobody to do them or nobody wants to do them and and they're jobs that are like terrible like at that in that in that time period in that in that setting doing dangerous jobs that nobody wants to do doing jobs that are really mining garbage collect sanitary collect you know sanitary work and stuff like that and what happens is is that there is a little bit of that. There is a little bit of bigotry toward them because they're taking our jobs, but also there's so many of them and they're needed by corporations to make money. There's that idea that they're needed, but at the same time, we don't like them around kind of thing. And there's and there's always been that idea behind that they were involved in this big, huge uh, terrorist plot that succeeded in the in the setting. So everything is digital. They, I forget. What, I think it takes takes place a few years before, uh, quite a few years before the the setting of the book starts, and and they cause a, a damage to all magnetic memory. So everybody's bank accounts are wiped out. Everybody's information is wiped out. Anything that's stored electronically is in one big huge terrorist plot erased. It's like a huge EMP or something. Right, like exactly. So it causes the world to go into chaos, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, it's blamed on replicants. And so years later, people are still kind of upset about that. And they still blame replicants, even though it was never truly... Their fault. Well... No, oh, no. It, it, was, it was their fault. No, it was never truly proven that replicants were at... It could ones. have been a corporation. It could have been anybody, right? So... I do... I, I Just to pause you for a second, when you're talking about the setting, the setting is cool because it's Los Angeles, right? But it's not like Los Angeles today. It's like a huge, even more populated Los Angeles, right? The population is... It's like... Everybody in the world is there. Not really, but that's what it feels like. Everything is built up huge. There's a bunch of different districts that you're going through. So when you want to go somewhere, you literally have to go. You, there's there's a cool map. So so the setting right. is, is immersive in that way, right? It's so cool that it's because it's it's a sci-fi setting in the future. And then there's environmental stuff, right? So. There's a lot of pollution, and you can't go outside very long, uh, stay outside very long because it's it's there's acid rain and and there's the quite a bit of pollution in certain areas of the of L.A. and that's all basically what is it window dressing right it, the the rads the radiation or the the pollution levels don't really impact you so much unless the DM GM wants you wants it to, and so oh, yeah, I never yeah. really used that in my game because it was mainly focused on the investigation part of it. I like the idea of the giant mega city kind of thing. Oh yeah, right. Arcologies they call them these huge yeah these huge uh, buildings that are owned by corporations and basically people live they shop they they get their entertainment there and then they live there all in one huge building 
and uh, they hardly leave those buildings unless there's absolutely reason. The other thing I really liked about this was the, and, and this is from the movie, obviously, the cars are hover cars. Flying cars. Flying hover cars. Well, the cop and cars in 1982, you know, when they made this movie, we all thought by 2020 there would be flying cars. Yeah, I'm so upset about that. I know it's it's a it's a, it's a thing. I don't I don't understand why we don't have flying cars. <laughs> yeah, it's a government conspiracy. So, but I, I think that's important when you're talking about because it's an IP, right? This this game is is right, and the setting and in the book, it, the the um the role playing. Oh my God, my brain stopped for a the second. The Blade Runner game in the Blade Runner game book. The pictures are very cool, and the maps they give you and stuff are very, very cool. Right. Yeah, the map is really neat. I remember this last time I decided, well, let, let's keep talking about the the book, how it's structured. So you got to, you get to character creation. Character creation can be really easy. If you've made characters for any other role-playing game, it's really easy. It's not like Pathfinder or D&D. It's much simpler. You just have points to spend on your attributes and your and your skills and that's it now there's other things involved there's there's chai-in points humanity points and promotion points now since i run this as one shots at a convention i didn't really deal with that chai-in is basically money how much money you have to spend like if they if your character wants to buy something on the black market how much money can he or she spend and then there's humanity points it has to do with with how you get more skills. And then there's promotion points it has to do with your job. So I didn't really touch on any of those. I think that's mainly, obviously, mainly for a longer term campaign if you want to run a campaign. But I have yet to run this as a campaign, obviously. I've run it as... I think it would be hard to run job. as a campaign. <laughs> I'm just saying, because by the end of the adventure, you're going to want to... Free those, yeah. You're gonna want to retire and let those replicants just go. I'm just saying. I mean, that's that's the biggest moral dilemma in the whole in the whole game, right? (laughs) Why am I chasing this person, and what did they really do? Well, you're also as a Blade Runner now. You're also there to ensure that replicants are not harassed and are safe. You have a dual, which is really, which is this game is like. It's hard. I know Mike and Mike and me and Felipe. We we let the we let the replicants go, and we had no qualms about it. Okay, so, so I'm still trying to finish the book. So it's real. And then it goes into uh, after character creation. It goes into the lore of the setting, and there's quite a few pages of lore. I mean, it does does give you quite a bit. The person who wrote it obviously loved Blade Runner obviously and just was very good at describing what's going on describing the lay of the land uh, why how people live and everything about the setting and then there's the gm section that tells you how to run the game how to set up adventures gives you tables of how to roll for adventures roll and make an instant adventure it's a corporate uh corporate kidnapping and uh so many people involved right and there's these tables that allow you to basically make up an adventure and get started in that in that sense and then you're done right the book is only 240 pages a lot of people complained about the length of the book i thought it was you know you don't need a 500 page tome 
it just makes things easier, harder to find. And if you're looking for a, a lot of people book. like that extra weight in that book. So. Yeah, a lot of people like books that stop a bullet or try to. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I think it probably could have been a little bit bigger, but I'm not going to complain about it. I think it has all the rules that it needed, except... It doesn't have it doesn't have an adventure in the back of the book. It doesn't have a pre-made adventure uh, characters in the back of the book. Everything everything like that is in the starter box. So, uh, I think I think the the one complaint that people said when I was reading the reviews of this, and you even said it yourself, it it makes it harder to make an adventure for a GM if you're looking at the adventures that or the adventure that comes in the starter kit because it's very heavily based on they, they want to give out pictures, um, photos of what happened because it's an investigative game, right? There, There's a lot of, of details that in the, in the starters, the one that we played, what was it called? Electric something? Electric Dreams. It had a lot of details, right? It had all the pictures of the scenes, which had clues in them, if you knew what you were looking for. It had written material that was given out, so you knew who the players were in the investigation. Well, that what the starter box has in it, and you're right, it has like 26 pictures, handouts, and stuff like that. And that is how the core book describes... A, an adventure should be handled, how you should create an adventure. You should have handouts. You should have pictures and stuff. And and that's the number one problem with this game is that it's not a quick up, quick pick-up game where you can just, oh, I have a half an hour. I have half an hour. I can make an adventure and run the characters through. At least the way it's supposed to be handled or the way the book tells you how to make an adventure because they say you include these clues and their visual clues their handouts and in those handouts there's clues to the game like literally in electric dreams there's there's a quite a bit of handouts and some of them are just pictures and from the pictures the players are supposed to glean clues from them just by looking at the picture and i'm sure some of them are pretty obvious to me but they may not be obvious to everybody who looks at the picture. That's the that's the thing about running an investigative game. It's you don't always know. Even if you show a picture that's supposed to have a clue in it, you don't know if your players are going to go, "Oh, that's a clue," because it could just be a vase to them, right? It's not a picture of of a little kid sitting in a in somebody's room doesn't necessarily point clue clue to the players, right? Right. The players might pick up on it. They might not. So that's that's one of the harder things in an investigative game, giving out the clues or right. getting the players to pick up on the clues. Exactly. <laughs> so what happens is that it's a if you are to write an adventure the way the core book tells you to write it, you're going to have... Can we pause? If you were to write an adventure the way the core book tells you to write the adventure, then the Electric Dreams starter box... Adventure is exactly the what you'd come up with. You would have a lot of handouts to hand out, uh, clues with, along with those handouts, and just stuff like newspaper clippings, uh, brochures, pages of uh, out of a book, theoretically pages out of a book, and other things that you would hand out or show the players. 
So the idea that you could quickly come up with this adventure, even though there's tables of how to make an adventure, like the plots of the adventure or the main ideas behind the adventure, the idea that you could quickly make a game or as a GM set up a game within 30 minutes or even an hour is difficult to achieve. And I would just like to say that I watched Saul go look at this adventure that he was going to run for us and he looked at it and he and he read it and he went through it but whenever you're running a module it's a lot harder because you didn't make the clues if it's an investigative game so i would suggest if you're going to run a module and i know they're coming out with more adventures right oh they have to i mean the the way that this last adventure the way the starbox adventure is it's like prime for people to go buy another one so if you're going to do that, you really have to go over it several times and then know what the clues are and where they are because the your players aren't necessarily, they haven't read it, right? Because it's a module and they're not going to know what the, which clues are important and which aren't because they had a lot of things in there that were like, could be like red herrings or stuff. Oh, I agree, yes. Or take you in a different direction than you would really want to go. Definitely, definitely. So if you're not making the adventure yourself where you can emphasize... Well, I would... I don't know. As a GM, modules are always harder for me to run because I'm not thinking the way the person that wrote the adventure is thinking. I have the same problem. Yeah, that's a problem, I think, for every GM. I don't know. Some GMs are really into running pre-written adventures or published adventures i have a harder time because i don't want to get things wrong so i always want to try to reference the module and that's terrible right when you are running an adventure and everything's going good but you forgot something or you think you forgot something which is even worse because then you're looking for something that may or may not exist exist. but when you write an adventure like this last time i rewrote all my notes right because the notes that i was i had during the first game first time i ran it we're very, all over the place. I have a notebook, and I would have an idea of, of, of a character of an NPC. I'd write it down, and then pages later, I'd have, oh, maybe the character should do this instead of that. So i write down that. And what ended up was I have pages and pages of notes, and there's no rhyme or reason why they're in the order that they're written. They're just written in the order of my mad coming up with madness of coming up with them in the order that i came up with them or sometimes i would ha- also review the look at it going yeah that's that doesn't seem like a good enough reason to excuse me a good enough reason to pull the characters in a certain direction and i came or i would come up with a an idea that i thought was better so i would write that out so what i did this last time was i took all my notes and i rewrote them in the order of the game uh, the the timeline of the game and much like the first adventure, I hardly ever looked at my notes. But by rewriting them in the order that you wanted to, it helped you to solidify the adventure in your brain before you went and sat down right. and played it with. And your... I still made up some stuff. Well, you always do that because the characters, the characters, the players came up and asking questions, and I'm like, I never thought of that. <laughs> Imagine that, and I'm like, oh yeah, and then, and I think I sold it that I. That's the way it was planned because they really got into that uh, idea. And they were, I wouldn't say it was a red herring, but they really took that and 
that idea that they came up with themselves and i was just like oh yeah that's that's exactly what it means or and stuff like that and it it worked i mean it really it really brought up emotions for them that of of dislike or hatred toward a certain npc so here's my question for you and the two times that you run this at uh, the conventions did they let the the replicants go well, I don't want to answer that question because it's kind of, I might still might run it again at another. Uh, no, I'm not telling you what the adventure is. I'm just asking you uh, the moral dilemma of, and in my experience, the moral dilemma is why are you trying to, why do you want to kill this replicant? Just let the replicant go on its way. And Well, in both cases, they let the replicant go on its way, so to speak. Ah. At least in my adventure. So what what I liked about that about the Starbox set was all the pictures and all the handouts and all this stuff. They give you a set of dice, not a big deal. Uh, they got these cards that help you do initiative and stuff like that, and they have cards that help you handle car chases, foot chases. And things like that. And they have cards that have like mug shots of the different NPCs, which are very useful. Except they put the names on the characters on the underneath. And, and as I like to do, I like to change the names. But I absolutely did not like the adventure that was written. I didn't think it was... I think the, I didn't think there was enough moral dilemma or the, the choice for the characters to make was gut-wrenching enough for me. And it seemed like, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it seemed to me like a foregone conclusion which way the most players would play or go. And I didn't didn't like that. I, I wanted them to, to make more of a gut-wrenching decision. And each time they, well, they, they chose very differently each time, the two times that I ran it. So I got to run it a third time to see which one is going to be more the way that most people go. But. Every time they made, but every time afterwards, there was somebody or a couple of players that were like, "I don't know if we made the right decision." So how, how do you ever know if you make the right decision? And and when with moral dilemmas like that. Well, I mean, I I thought after the first game, it went the way I thought it would go, right? Mm -hmm. I really did. Mm -hmm. And then the second time I ran it at at Kubicon, I was like, "Wow!" I was like shocked. But they took a totally different tact on the idea of what it means to be a replicant. Because, like, the person running the replicant was very, like, replicant rights and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I thought it was very interesting how that game played out, how that adventure worked out. So I, I used the adventure. I even used the pictures that were in the starter box. I even used the characters, right, the NPCs and stuff. But what I did change was the adventure itself. It, it just... I had to change it because, like I said, I didn't like it. And I don't know. I haven't ran the – I haven't had people who played the game and played in Electric Sheep and then played in my game if there's enough of a difference that it would be fun for people who have played that game and then play my game. But but it seemed to me like people really enjoyed the game that I ran. Like I said, there was – at the very end of this – especially this last game, one guy was going, well – like he was really – not happy with the decision that he had made as far as the character. He's like, I don't feel good about the decision, but I think, but he goes, but I still think we did the right thing, which I, I think is good, right? When you have that kind of emotional quandary as far as like, 
well, I think we did the right thing, even though I don't really like what. That's we this did. whole the whole Blade Runner <laughs> game, which I think it was. That's what it is, it was right? Successful, yeah, exactly. So that's why, like I said, like the starter box, the, the adventure. I think it's pretty straightforward, and I think almost one hundred percent of the time, well, not one hundred percent time, but a high percentage of the time, characters or players are going to do what I think they're going to do in that game, like what you guys did. Yeah. Right. 100%. I mean, not 100%, but I would say 90% go that route. And I'm like, it's to me, it seemed like too, more, too much of a foregone conclusion. And so I had to change the game. And I think, it, I think it's better. I, I hate to say it. You know, <laughs> that I, don't, I, don't know how, <clears throat> I don't know how you change the game, but I do know that whenever you're going to play this game, that's probably what your players are going to be thinking about is the, the moral dilemma, right? Right. Are you, oh, I mean, maybe this replicant is going to go crazy and kill people. So maybe you need to eliminate them or retire them. Retire well. them. <laughs> but then again, as you're going through the game, maybe you discover that the replicant isn't going to go crazy and it just wants to go away. <laughs> right, right. And live out its life somewhere else. Well, well yeah, yeah. And I think there's all kinds of things that, that you're right that, that this game does touch upon. Uh, bigotry and they even have like the replicant underground right so so you're right i think it mirrors a lot of stuff that's going on in the real world and i think it's uh i think it's one of those games that you have to have like safety tools on the table there's gonna be uh, what is it uh, very questionable things that characters can do if they play the game the way it's written right it is a brutal world that people do uh, brutal things to each other. And uh, and the idea that you are basically out to kill things that may or may not be human, right? And may be malfunctioning. So what do you do in that case? I mean... It just solidifies my belief that we shouldn't create <laughs> replicants or clones. There you go. There you go. There you go. So I really like the game. I really like the way it was presented. The the art is, I think I like it. It is that watercolor art that a little bit brighter than it was in Alien. But I like it. I like the style. The only thing is, is that if you are going to make an adventure like Core Book says you should, it could be a little bit daunting. I would definitely, if you're going to run this game, go out and get the starter box set and it has a lot of information in there you could just get that starter box because it has rules for how to play the game like a little 46 or 56 page booklet that has the rules and the adventure and has pre-made characters has everything you need so if you want a cheaper way of looking at this game and thinking if you want to buy this game i would get the starter box and get that the book itself is like fifty nine ninety nine plus tax US. And I think it's a really good game. I think uh, if you like investigative games, if you love Blade Runner, this is a game for you. You should definitely try it out. And uh, and just as a disclaimer, even though I thought the movie was boring, I would suggest you watch it because you might not think it's boring. And by boring, I mean there wasn't a lot of action. It was a lot of thinking and stuff like that. So... It's still a really cool setting. There I'm just go. saying. There you go. It's boring, but cool setting, the movie, Blade Runner, according to Julian. <laughs> I mean, it was funny because a lot of people think of it as a, one of the best uh, sci-fi movies out there. There you go. There it is. <laughs> this is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Julian. And you have a good day.